invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, which is on page 1066 in the Pew Bibles, John, chapter 13, page 1066. If you think about it this week, uh, I'd appreciate you keeping me in your prayers. I'm uh, traveling to a conference in Oregon, Port, uh, not, uh, in uh, Portland, Oregon, to uh, speak at a preaching conference there, and then coming back that Saturday to preach at a conference in Boston. So, kind of an unusual week for me. I don't usually do that. I'm more of a homebody, really, when it comes to ministry. So, just you know, pray for God's word to uh, affect and encourage others, and for other men to get a vision for gospel preaching and for expository preaching. Uh, this week, as I travel around, John chapter thirteen, and as we turn. This morning from John chapter 12 to John chapter 13, uh, we are making a major, in fact, I would say the major transition in this gospel. There's a very uh, sort of strong sense that as you end chapter 12, the curtain falls on act one, and as you turn to chapter 13, the curtain rises on act two of the gospel of John. It's a major sort of hinge transition point. You go from chapters 1 through 12, which is the first two and a half-ish years of Jesus' public ministry, his teaching, his preaching, his miracles, his work among the cities, and you you transition to the last couple days of Jesus' ministry, his last supper, the cross, the burial, the resurrection. And, And you also shift focus from uh, the crowds and the people out there in chapters 1 through 12. And the chapter 13, the focus, especially chapters 13 to 17, is very much about the disciples during the Last Supper. Especially 13 to 17, there's this, this kind of intimate focus on Jesus and his followers. So as you move from the crowds to the disciples in the focus, there's also a shift, I would say, in what I would call the tone. You, you know, chapters 1 through 12, the tone, there's a lot of this going on. A lot of buttonheads arguing, combat, verbal combat between Jesus and the Pharisees and people believing but not really believing. And it, it's a little rough. It's a little abrasive at some points. But when you turn to chapter 13, the tone is more like this. It's Jesus with the disciples and he's embracing them. He's comforting them because they're about to face the cross. He's encouraging them. He's, it, there's love and warmth and intimacy, and he whispers to them the secrets of God that only the disciples know. And so for that reason, chapters 13 to 17 are a, a, a kind of precious, special portion of the gospel of the scriptures in which Jesus speaks to his disciples in ways and about things that you don't hear in some ways anywhere else. It's a, a very precious portion of scripture. And I have to say that as I was um, way back thinking about preaching through the gospel of John, one of the things that was pushing me toward John's gospel was the opportunity to lead you as a congregation through these four chapters and to allow you to hear and experience this precious, intimate dialogue between Jesus and his followers. I, I was hoping that you as a church would really hear the love of God for you afresh, to know who you are in Christ, to to be strengthened and built up as Christians through this passage of Scripture. 
And so I'm hoping that as we kind of um, linger our way through these next four chapters over the next couple months, that, that as we sort of work our way through it, you will marinate in the love of God and that you'll come to know God's love for you and to know your relationship with Christ in a way maybe that you haven't before. So I hope that you'll be leaning in and tuning in. And so as we come to this major transition to chapter 13, uh, it begins with a, a most poignant, touching story. One of the most, uh, in some ways, touching stories in all of John's gospel. It's incredible. It is this famous story that's only found here in John's gospel of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Look here at chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Stop there for a moment. It's the Passover, the high holy day of Judaism when the Jewish people celebrated their exodus from Egypt when God had redeemed them. Passover is, is kind of like the Good Friday and Easter of Judaism. It's when they celebrate the main thing that God did to rescue them as his people. And here they are at this meal, and uh, we, we've talked about this before, but in, in formal dining settings among the Jews in the first century, you didn't sit at a table to eat. You laid on, on a mattress or on the ground with your, sort of your arm propping you up and you're eating from the table like this and your feet are stretched out behind you. So as you try to visualize this scene in the upper room and imagine Jesus washing feet, you know, he's not trying to you know, force his way under a table to wash feet. He, he's just going around behind the people whose feet are all radiating out from the table. It, you know, it's, it's easier to do. And as you think about foot washing, maybe we should just talk about that for a minute, because we really don't practice foot washing in our culture. We really don't want anyone touching our feet or seeing our feet. And, and so this is kind of weird, foot washing. Like, we don't really have a category for this. So just to kind of get into the culture of that time, there's two things you need to know about foot washing. One positive, one negative. First of all, positively, it was a common act of hospitality. So you went over to someone's house. If they were a good host, they would give you water for your feet. You know, it's like, hi, welcome. Can I take your coat? Do you want a drink? Here's some water for your feet. And if you had a servant or a slave, that slave would also probably wash the feet of the person. If you were wealthy enough that you had a slave, the slave would wash the feet. The host didn't wash feet. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but a slave would do that. But it was just common courtesy. People back then traveled by foot on dirty roads that were also traveled by animals. And you're out there in the dusty desert and you come into the house and your feet are dirty. And, and it was just common courtesy to give someone some water to wash their feet. You know, it's like my kids in the summer. They, they run all over barefoot in the yard and they're always coming in and their feet are just filthy. And my wife's 
you know, always like, oh, your feet are dirty. Wash your feet. Don't come in here. You know, and it, it just, this tape plays all summer. And uh, th- that's how it is. The people are coming into a house. It's common courtesy. You wash the feet. Um, and that leads then kind of to the second thing to know culturally about foot washing is that it was the most humble, menial task to have to wash somebody's feet. So that's why I said a host didn't wash feet. If you had a slave, the slave did it. That was a slave's job. Not just a slave's job, but like it was the lowest of the slave job. So you knew where you were in the, uh, the hierarchy of the slaves in the house if you're the guy who got stuck washing the feet. It, it was the most menial, subservient job that a person could take. Uh, you know, often uh, all of us in our, our work, there are jobs that nobody wants to do, and some guy gets stuck with that job. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked in a movie theater, uh, which is kind of a cool high school job, getting to see movies. But there was this one task that you never wanted to get. We called it gum patrol. And basically what it was is you had a cup, you know, you got a cup from the, for the soda, and you had a putty knife, and you had to get on your hands and knees and go down the aisles and, you know, scrape the gum off of the chairs and the floor that people during the movie had picked in their gum and stuck it under the chair. And you're trying to get the gum off and you're, you know, and if it was kind of fresh, it was still like, you know, and you, you kind of hope for the old dry gum because it would sort of chip off and, you know, it was like a, you know, a dry one. But those wet ones were still, it was, it was horrible, you know. And so you knew that if you had gum patrol, either you knew either the boss was ticked with you or you were the new guy. And everyone's like, oh, we got to let him do it. I've done I've already done it the last two times. And so it was the dirty job that nobody wanted to do. So imagine the shock and awe as Jesus stands up and he starts taking off his robes. I'm sure at that point the conversation hushed around the table. What's he doing? Then he gets a towel. He wraps it around his waist. He puts on basically slave uniform. That's what slaves would wear. And then he goes around and gets the water, and he does the unspeakable, the unthinkable. He begins to wash the feet of the disciples. He does the task that only the low slave in the food chain would do in a, a Greco-Roman household. And, you know, it, it is, it, it's tough maybe for us to see it, but this would have just been shocking. It would have been unheard of. This would have been so over-the-top dramatic. Like, what is he doing <laughs> He's washing feet? Unbelievable. In all of uh, ancient Jewish rabbinic literature and in all of Greco-Roman ancient literature, we have yet to find any story in which a superior washes the feet of an inferior. As far as as we know, this is an unprecedented act. There's not a social category for this. This doesn't fit anywhere. It's just bizarre. And as you can imagine, incredibly arresting and it raises an immediate question, why in the world would Jesus do this? This is so incomprehensible to them. Why would he be washing their feet? Did he just sort of forget the rules? Probably not. Jesus is always doing things intentionally. He's a very intentional person. So why is he doing this? What does it mean? Yes, Jesus did do this on purpose. He did have a, a reason. He's trying to show his disciples and teach them something. This is an object lesson. But what's the object? What, what, what is it he trying to accomplish and communicate? I, I think as we look through this passage, there are actually three distinct things that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples and trying to show 
us as well, the reader, is what John's trying to show us. Three things, they're all interrelated, they all connect to each other, but, but as you walk through this passage, there are three distinct sto- uh, uh, truths or lessons that we're supposed to take away from that simple act of going around pouring some water on somebody's feet. And the first one is this. This is the first thing I think Jesus was trying to show. Number one, he was trying to show how much he loved his disciples. And by extension, John was telling us a story so that we would know how much Jesus loves us. It's right there in verse one. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them all those years with them doing ministry, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The, the Greek phrase is, he loved them to the end, which could mean he loved them to the end of his life or he loved them to the uttermost. It's tough to know exactly how to translate that. He loved them all the way to, to the max. Jesus loved them. So he's communicating and demonstrating his love. He loves them, and he's showing it to them. You know, to, to, to break a social custom like that and to wash their feet, he must have really loved them. We typically don't break social customs, but if you love someone, eh, you'll do it, right? If you really love someone, the rules don't matter. You don't care because you love them, right? You know, it's like, it's like parents with a little baby, I, you know, I... Uh, little babies are gross. I mean, let's just face it. They, they, they throw up. They fill up their diapers. You're changing them, and then they cut loose while you're changing them. I think of Pastor Godwin and his new baby, and I laugh because I imagine him doing all those things that I don't have to do anymore, and just think of the mess that babies are. They're, they're just constantly, you know, spewing out substances, and Babies are messy. But you know what? You don't care if you're a parent. You don't care. You're like, oh, it's cute. It's not cute. It's gross. But you're weird in the head because you love it. And love makes you just see things differently. And you're like, I don't care. I love this baby. And, and when you love someone, things that are gross or things you normally wouldn't do, you don't care about. And so here's Jesus. He's like, he loves them. He loves them so much, he's going to wash their feet. It's an act of love to wash someone's feet. But not, it's even more than that, though. If we stop there, we're going to miss this. It's not just that he loved them because he did a menial task to help them, but that menial task was itself a foreshadowing, a prefigurement, a, a, a parable about another act of servant cleansing that Jesus is going to do within the next 24 hours. That it was a little picture of what Jesus is about to do the next day on the cross. The greatest act of service, a greater cleansing for the disciples when he would go to the cross. I mean, look back at the text. It says, again, look at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. So the Passover, whenever the Passover occurs in the Gospel of John, it it carries this connotation of the sacrifice and the salvation. So this is happening during the Passover. That's important. It says in the next sentence, Jesus knew that the time had come. The time had come. I don't know why this English translation translates it time. The Greek word is hour. 
the hour had come. And the word hour is important because whenever that occurs in the Gospel of John, or not whenever, but often when it occurs in the Gospel of John, it has the overtones of the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. Do you remember back in chapter 2? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus is at a wedding. His mom is there. They're hanging out. And Jesus' mom says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says, dear woman, why do you concern me with this? My hour, my hour has not yet come. I didn't come here to fill wine jars, even though he does anyway. I came here for the cross. So he's like, my hour's not yet come. John chapter 13, the hour has come. Now is the time. We're now ready for the cross. So the foot washing takes place within that hour. And it's the hour, as as if we could miss this, the hour, look at, for him to leave the world and go to the Father. He's going to heaven. He's going to return to the Father. Now begins the events where he'll be crucified, buried, raised, ascended to heaven. The time has come for him to depart. The hour is here. And it's in that context of him ready to go that he shows them the full extent of his love. You know, his, the, the full extent of his love is not washing dirt off feet. It's washing sin off of our souls through his sacrifice. That's the real extent of it. You know, that's why down in verses 6 and 7, he says to Simon Peter, Simon Peter, you know, he speaks up. No one knows what to say, but Peter always says something. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, Look, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand. What does that mean? It means after I'm crucified, this will all make sense. You're not going to get it now. Why are you doing this? Just because there's no slavery to wash my feet? No, 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 no. This is an object lesson. You're not going to get it now, Peter. You just got to trust me. Stop talking, Peter. Just trust me for once. And, and you're going to know, you know, when you back, look back through the lens of the cross, this foot washing moment is going to be amazing, and you're going to get it but you're not going to get it now. So Jesus' love for us and love for those disciples is not just demonstrated in that he would be willing to do a dirty job for them that breaks social custom. It's that he was going to be willing in less than 24 hours to die for them. It's one thing to serve someone by washing their feet, but to serve them on the cross. One thing to take off your robes and wash their feet. Another thing to be stripped naked on a cross. One thing to wash someone with water, another to wash away our sins with his blood, with his blood. So he came to wash away our sins. I mean, the the act of service, the thing we can't do for ourselves is to, to have our sins washed away. It's tough to admit that we have sins that need to be washed away. It's tough to face that. We like to think highly of ourselves, um, and we like to present the best side of ourselves, present the mask, present the I'm, I'm good, try to keep our dirty feet back away from the table so you can't see them or smell them. But, but we have a sinful side to our, our person. Um, you know, one of the reasons I like Facebook so much is because I can really filter what you know about me on Facebook. It's great. I can put the pictures on Facebook where I look awesome, you know. I don't put the picture on Facebook of me like two minutes after waking up in the morning. I put the, the awesome-looking picture with the right profile that makes me look thinner. You know, I love that part of it. And, and I, I love, you know, on Facebook, I'm, on Facebook, I'm, I'm so witty. It's awesome. And I'm really spiritual on Facebook. And, and all these great things about me. And the other part of me you don't see, right? I, I think I like the Facebook Jeremy more than the real Jeremy, actually. I think, I think you would, too. But there's that other side of us. The dirty side, the sinful side, 
the hard-to-live-with side, the self-absorbed side that we don't see. But Jesus sees it. He, he's not there at the table. He's walking around with the feet. He sees the dirt. He, he's washing it. You know, you, you can't, there's no privacy settings that keep God out of our lives. He sees it all. He knows it all. He sees the dirty, hears the dirty words, you know, the dirty jokes, the dirty lies, the filthy slander and gossip and, and grumbling. Jesus sees the dirty thoughts. He sees the pornographic thoughts. He sees the angry, punching people out thoughts, the, the, the prideful, arrogant thoughts, the, the self-aggrandizing thoughts. He, he somehow sees what's in my heart and my soul. God knows the, the, uh, the dirty laundry from our pasts. He knows about dirty needles and dirty rooms that have been trashed from week-long parties, dirty business deals and dirty politics that we've been involved in. It just it, All the stuff in our lives that should make us unacceptable to God, that does make us unacceptable to God, He sees it. And I can't filter that. God sees it. And here's the amazing thing, to think that God loved us so much that His response to our filth was to send His Son to bleed to wash away our filth. That instead of looking at us and saying, that goes in the trash, He said, I'm going to save that. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. You know, a mother's love is amazing, but a mother's love is nothing compared to the love of God. Because a mother loves a child that still has her DNA and reflects her. God loved rebels. He loved people who hated him, who wanted nothing to do with his laws, who mocked his church, who mocked his son, who took his name in vain. Oh, my God. People say it all the time. It's like, wow, <laughs> stop blaspheming. You know? We don't care about God. And God responded to a whole life, a whole life lived against him, by sending his son to bleed so that his blood, like we sang, could wash away our sins. It's amazing, the love of God. God's love is so great. Do, do we really get the love of God? And I think that's something I can constantly struggle with as a Christian. I, I just feel like I haven't yet fully understood how much God loves us. To really grasp the love of God for us. It, you know, the old cliche, you've heard the cliche, you know, that getting it from here down to here. Yeah, I, I know he loves me. I affirm that. It's in the scriptures. But do I, do I really live it? What would that mean if I truly knew the love of God for me? Maybe, maybe you uh, grew up in some kind of background where love isn't a concept that you learned. You know, family and love really didn't go together. And so you, you try to put that together, and it doesn't make sense, you know, what God's love is like. You don't have a category for it. And, and I would just say, look to the cross to see God's love. And if the cross is too far away and it's too big, start with the foot washing. Because the foot washing will take you to the cross. Look at what Jesus did for, for people who should be on the trash heap. He saved us and washed us. That's how much he loves us. It's amazing. So Jesus wanted to show that. He washed his feet to show his love both in the act itself, but also in what the act was pointing to, which is the greatest act of love in all the history of the world. I, I don't know, you, you know what, what, 
what you think of when you think of love. There has been, never been in the history of the world an act of love like this. This is divine love. This is not human love. This is not romantic love. This is not you know, top 40 music love. This is real love that God would love his enemies and make them his sons and daughters. I don't know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's like struggling to preach about this. Like, How do you show how great this is? I don't know. Holy Spirit, let them see it. The second thing that Jesus shows through this act, the first is how much he loves them. The second is a very related concept, but it is the fact that we are truly clean. That's the second thing Jesus wants to show them. You're clean. If Jesus cleans you, you're clean. End of story. If you belong to Jesus, you're clean. That comes out in the conversation with Peter. So now let's, let's kind of move the story along. The second thing Jesus shows him comes out as he talks to Peter. So go back to verse 6. There's Peter. No one knows what to say, so Peter just fires up. We, we, we would probably say today that Peter processes his emotions and thoughts verbally. Um, you know, he just talks, blah, 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 blah. he says things, and you know, he's figuring out what he really thinks as he's talking. It's, uh, it's very Peter. Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Look, Peter, just chill. You'll realize later what I'm doing. Trust me, okay, you'll understand. That's not enough. Verse 8, no, says Peter, you shall never wash my feet. This is totally out of bounds. You know, you know, Peter's noble. You won't wash my feet. You're the Lord, and I'm the servant. The, the Greek is very emphatic. It's like, no, not, you shall wash my feet forever. You're never going to do this. You're never going to wash my feet. Don't. So Jesus says, well, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Look, you know, he, Peter doesn't get yet that the foot washing is a symbol of the cross. And so Jesus is still tracking with that. It's like, look, if I don't go to the cross, if I don't wash you, if I don't die for you, then you can't be a part of me. Because the way we're a part of God is through Jesus, not through our own good works or anything like that. And so he, he says, look, you, you'll never have a part of me unless I wash you. And you've got to love the whiplash in verse 9. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet and my hands and my head, but my head as well. You know, you'll never wash me. Wash all of me, you know. And you're going to be the head of the church in the early church. Great. Wow, good to know we're under like that kind of steady leadership. He's such a spaz. And so he still doesn't get it. He's, he's just flopping all over. So Jesus says this in verse 10. And th- verse 10 and 11, I, I have really struggled to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. It's a little ambiguous. Commentators differ on it. But here's what Jesus says in verse 10. So he answers Jesus. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean. There it is. You are clean. Though, not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So what in the world is going on verse 10? I just beat my head against my desk this week trying to figure out verse 10. I think this is what's happening, and this is, this is my interpretation on it, and I'll just kind of throw it out there and see what you think. I think what's happening in verse 10 is Jesus is changing the metaphor on the fly. I think what he's doing in verse 10 is is he's kind of teaching improvisationally in light of the conversation he's having with Peter. So Peter is not getting it, and Jesus, as a master teacher, 
he sort of shifts the metaphor around to communicate a related but sort of different thing than he was saying before. You know, really good teachers do this. Really good teachers know that if that people aren't connecting, and so they, they're able to, in the moment, kind of shift what they're saying to meet the hearer where the hearer is at. And so I think that's what's going on with Peter here. You, you know, the, the point is you, you need to be washed. The washing, what Jesus is going to do on the cross is what makes us a part of him. Peter is totally not getting that, obviously. He's like, well, wash my whole self. So I think what happens is Jesus now turns the metaphor in a different way. And the point is to communicate to Peter, you're, you're clean. And so he says, look, you've had a bath. You need only to wash your feet. So now washing feet doesn't mean so much what Christ is going to do for them on the cross as it is kind of the ongoing you know, sin that we have in our lives. But we're clean if we're in Christ. You see that? I think that's, I think that's what's going on here. So if you're in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, you're clean. There was one guy in the room who wasn't clean, Judas. He was the wolf in sheep's clothing who looked like a disciple, but he really wasn't deep down. And uh, there's Judas, and he's about to betray Jesus. He's not clean, but Peter, you're already clean. Especially once Jesus dies for him, he'll be clean. But you're clean, Peter. That's it. It's done. And this is the incredible thought that that man, if you're in Jesus, you're clean. If you're in Christ, you're clean. I love that about God's love. God's love gets it done. We talk a lot about love. There's a lot of sentimentality about love today, falling in love. It, it moves us. It gives us tears. We watch love, love story movies because, you know, it's an emotional catharsis, and we cry, and then it's over, and we go on with our lives you know, the, the story of Jesus is not like a movie. It's a love story that's just meant to touch us sentimentally. Jesus' love actually accomplishes something. It is a muscular love. It is, it is a love that gets the job done. And when Jesus loved us by dying on the cross for his people, he, it wasn't just a sentimentality or an idea. He actually cleansed us. It actually made a difference. We are now clean in God's sight. If you're in Christ you're forgiven in God's sight. You're clean. Or to shift metaphors, you know, if, if you've been pardoned in the courtroom of God's justice and God says not guilty because of Christ, then you're not guilty. Even if you continue to, to sin, the judgment is not guilty. There is no double jeopardy. You've pardoned. If you've been bought out of slavery to sin and redeemed into God's family and adopted, then you're adopted. Even if sometimes you still don't act like a child of God, you're in God's family. If you've been born again, you can't be unborn again. When you're saved, when you're forgiven, when you're clean, in God's sight, you're clean. You know, again, these guys came to the banquet. They'd probably showered or cleaned up ahead of time or a person cleans up before going to a banquet. They just need their feet clean. And yeah, we still struggle with sin in our lives. We sometimes fail. Peter in less than 24 hours, would deny Jesus three times. So he's not some perfect, pristine, infallible, (laughs) wonderful guy. He's a sinner. But because he's in Christ, he's clean. He's clean in God's sight. We are clean if we're in Christ. It's an amazing thought. You know, this, this is the opposite of, this is the polar opposite of karma. I don't know if you ever heard of, you know, karma. Karma is like if you do good things, good things come back to you. And if you do bad things, bad things come back to you. And the thing we often forget about karma is karma is integrally 
interwoven with reincarnation. That's where karma comes from. So the idea is, you put it all together, is I'll do good things, and if my life is good, it'll come back to me good in the next life where I'll kind of go up a step in, in the ladder toward heaven or toward nirvana. I'll come back in a higher caste or a, you know, a better life. And if I do bad things in this life, that'll come back to me negatively. And when I am reincarnated in the next life, I might be a step down. And if I'm really bad, I might be like an animal or something. You know? and so you can kind of go up and down the, the ladder of whatever goodness. And hopefully you keep going up and up and someday you achieve heaven or nirvana or, or whatever that is. And I just want to say the Bible is the 180-degree opposite of that. It's, you're clean. <laughs> you know? It's not karma like, you know, work on it, keep improving, keep striving. It's Jesus is perfection, and he gave you his righteousness and took your sin. So in God's sight, it's done. You know? It is destined for man once to die and then to the judgment. You don't get another shot at this. This is it. And the only way to stand at the judgment is if God has forgiven you. You can't make up for sin in our lives. Sin is not like calories that you work off with good deeds. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a rap sheet that just doesn't go away unless it's expunged by a judicial act. And so God has forgiven us. And if you're in Christ, you're clean, you're clean, you're clean. We still struggle with sin? Yep. We need to come back to God every day and say, Lord, forgive me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So yeah, the feet still get dirty, but you're accepted by God. What a difference that makes. And yet I think we struggle with this as Christians. Um... That journey from here to here, again, is hard on this concept that we're really forgiven in God's sight. You know, isn't it funny that even we as Christians who maybe don't believe in karma, hopefully, don't believe in reincarnation or that, yet we as Christians can still live our Christian lives with an overarching feeling of perfectionism, legalism, uh, uh, performance focus as Christians, where we get out of bed in the morning, we're like, okay, this is what I got to do today to be right with God. I got to do this, and I got to do this, and God wants me to do that. And it's true, we, we need to obey him. Instead of jumping out of bed, and the first thing we say in the morning is, I'm clean! <laughs> Woo! I'm still forgiven! Wow! All right, that, that's a totally different motivation and dynamic in the heart for obedience, because it's just, I'm so happy. I'm filled with love and joy that Christ has saved me. Now I'm going to follow him today. Instead of, i got to get this right and get that right. I don't want to screw that up. I don't want to mess up again. But the, you start the day with clean. Like that song we sang, are you resting in Christ? Are you resting in his righteousness? Or are you, even though you profess faith by grace, you still live by works? How do we live the Christian life? And just one more word of encouragement for, for some of you here who maybe you know, wouldn't consider yourself Christians or are just kind of checking out the church or the Bible or something like that. I just want to encourage you and say, you know, you can be clean. There's nothing you've done. There's nowhere you've been. There's no past that you have that is so dirty that the powerful blood of Jesus can't wash it clean. You can be forgiven. And you say, well, I don't know. I, you know there's no one like me here. 
you, then you don't know the people in this room. <laughs> like I know them. And like I know myself. Everyone here's got a story. That's one of the misconceptions. You walk into church and you're like, oh, these are all, you know, nice, you know, perfect Christian Hingham people and I don't belong here and I'm from this background. Like, like dude, you have no clue where you are. You should just talk to the people in this room. Everyone has issues. Everyone has a past. We all have stuff. And to think of our sin and the struggles that God has forgiven and where he's brought us, it's amazing. This, this room is filled with sinners saved by grace, made clean through Jesus, not through squeaky clean, clean lives. And you can be clean too. You can keep trying to do your karma. You can keep trying to do your, whatever you do to make yourself better. But when you finally get tired of that, when you finally come to the realization that even your good efforts are tainted, I just want you to know there's a Savior who can clean you. You can be clean. Okay, last, last lesson here, and we'll, we'll close with this. Why did Jesus do the foot washing? Number one, to show that he loved them, not just by washing their feet, but by washing their sins. Number two, he did it kind of on-the-fly lesson, but to show them that they really are clean. I mean, if he washes you, then you're clean. So there's that lesson there. And then the third lesson, and this is in verses 12 to 17, the very end, is that then Jesus' humble service becomes a model for how we are to treat each other within the body of Christ. That Jesus is our model of humility and service to others. Right? We're people who've been saved out of the world by the humble service of Jesus, and therefore we should be marked fundamentally by the humble servant attitude by which Christ saved us. It's, it's just part of the culture that we should have as believers. You know, you get that in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. There it is. The foot washing is our example. Interestingly, some uh, at different times in church history, different Christian groups, different rituals have actually practiced literal foot washing. Churches sometimes take this verse and they say, well, you know, let's start with just really actually washing each other's feet. Uh, uh, Maundy Thursday services, which is a, Maundy Thursday is the day before Good Friday. And churches historically have had worship services on Maundy Thursday before Good Friday. We do that here in our church. And sometimes what churches do in Maundy Thursday services is foot washing. That's actually practice sometimes. Or sometimes churches will do that once in a while. And I don't, has anyone here ever been part of a literal foot washing service? Some of you have? Yeah, it's, um, Yes, okay, some of you have. And I never have. Um, and, but what I've always heard from people is, you know, it's a little weird, but it's really powerful to actually have someone wash your feet or to wash someone else's feet. It's very humbling, and it, it strikes you. And I think that's really cool. I, I think, you know, churches do that sometimes, and it's fine to do that. But what I hope we see, and, and I, th- I hope you get this, you probably already have, is that when Jesus says, I've given you an example, the point wasn't, to just introduce a ritual that's done on Monday Thursday, which is fine to do, but he's talking about something so much more. He's talking about the fundamental way that we relate to each other as believers. He's talking about the, the cultural atmosphere of his saved people. Um, 
you know, in a business, you, businesses often have their core values and their mission statement. And they'll say, this is, this is our core values, this is the corporate culture we want to have. If you were to use kind of businessy way of thinking, uh, in, a, in the church's core value statement, right at the top would be humility and service to others. That should just be kind of how we relate to each other. It's a very countercultural way of relating. The world is not about humility. It's about putting yourself up and getting yourself noticed on YouTube and, you know, uh, climbing the ladder and making the honor roll and getting to the top of the food chain in the, in the office. You know, it's always about going up. And this idea of making yourself less, it doesn't make sense in the world. And focusing on the needs of others. We're cold by our culture. It's about you. It's about your needs. You need to focus on what you need to get. And... You know, there's, there's little kernels of truth in that in some ways, in some contexts. But the idea that, no, no, my life is about serving others, that's not something that's really reinforced and encouraged in, in what we hear and in the culture around us. So what Jesus is talking about here as the way that we should relate to each other as believers, following his example, is absolutely upside down. And it just makes you wonder, you know, what would it be like in a church where the cultural atmosphere of the church was one of humble service. That was just the baseline. What, what would that be like? You know, how would we view the church? How would we view each other? How would you view the different roles and tasks in the church, the, the different roles that people play? Because I think that, that sometimes we would probably never admit this, we'd never actually say this out loud, but in our minds, we, we create a hierarchy of who's important in a church and who isn't. You know, we would never say that, but in our minds, it's kind of just there operating. Maybe it comes out of our natural, our cultural context. Maybe it just comes out of our sin nature. But, you know, it's like, a, it's like a, uh, uh, an org chart, a pyramid. You know, there's someone at the top, and it moves down. So at the top of the pyramid is always the senior pastor. That's great. Um, yeah. And then underneath senior pastor, you know, you have other pastors like, you know, Godwin and Seth, and, and they're right up there at the top of the pyramid. And then maybe underneath them, the elders, because we've recognized them as lay shepherds of the church, and they're way up on the pyramid somewhere. And then underneath them, I don't know, where, where do you go from there? Maybe it's like the staff, because we're paying them, and so if you're paid, you're important, right? Uh, because th- that means you're important if you get money, I suppose. So, so they're up there somewhere. Uh, and then up there, there's like ministry leaders, committee leaders. They're kind of the next layer down in the pyramid, and they have importance and significance. Oh, yeah, and then, and then maybe people who, who serve in different ways in the church, and maybe people who are up on stage on a platform. So if you're a musician or a choir person, that's important because it's up front and people see it. But then you kind of get down lower, and well, then there's people who serve on committees, and there's people who do humble tasks in the church. You, you know, uh, they, they, they serve coffee or things like that. And then, of course, way at the bottom, you know, it has to be the nursery. You know, because, like, did you really want to come to church to deal with some other baby's poop? It doesn't get more humble than that. I mean, I love Godwin, but I don't want to deal with his baby's poop. I just, so if you're there, I mean, that's the, you know, that's like the the, the menial level. And so even though we don't want to admit it, we have this pyramid in our heads, right, this org chart. And this is my weird imagination, so I, I apologize for inflicting it on you. But, but I just imagine Jesus seeing the org chart. Be like, look, Jesus, that's how our church is. Isn't that awesome? And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. That's interesting. It, actually, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I, could I just tweak one thing? Well, I, I mean, you're Jesus, so shall. <laughs> it's kind of your church. You're, you actually, you're like a circle at the top of the pyramid. Oh, cool, cool. Can I, I just want to tweak one thing in the pyramid, and then it's perfect. Okay, okay, cool. Go ahead. So Jesus walks over the pyramid, and he, I just see him like, okay, we'll just do one thing, take this pyramid, and ah, 
perfect. Now it's all right. Good job. And of course, you know what happens to stone pyramids that are upside down, right? It all just falls apart. Because Jesus taught us that he who would be greatest in the kingdom of God must be who? The servant of all. And then you realize it really isn't about what job you do at all in the church. It's how you do it. You know, you could, you could be someone working in the nursery or serving coffee or a pastor, and you could be really full of yourself and be really all about yourself. You can, you know, I, my ability to turn anything about me, no matter what job I'm doing, is pretty amazing. And you could do any job in the church, from an elder to any job, and you could do it as a humble servant and really with a focus on others. So it's not about an org chart. It's like, Jesus, you turned it upside down and you ruined our org chart. And Jesus is like, no, no, I fixed your org chart. <laughs> it's just a big pile now of sinners serving and helping each other and loving each other. It's humility and service. That's totally crazy, but it's, it's the kingdom of God and how it works. But, but it's not just roles and jobs. I mean, we've got to look beyond that. It's how we relate to each other. I mean, forget what's, you know, the jobs and the tasks and the roles. It's just how we treat each other. You know, if you're in a growth group with somebody and someone's gone through a hard time, it, it is an act of, of self-denial and service to spend 45 minutes after the growth group just listening to that person as they kind of pour out the stuff that's on their heart. And, you know, you, maybe you want to go home and catch your favorite show or go to sleep or whatever, but, it, you know, you sit there and you listen. And, and then, you know, that's cool. But then, like, what about, like, if that problem goes on for six months and you still are listening and encouraging? Now, that's when you know if you really love somebody is to keep sort of persevering through them, with them through that and listening and helping them work through a difficult time in their life. So, so it's not just the jobs. It's just how we relate to each other in everything that we do in the church and how we humble ourselves and serve each other. And, and what if, crazy thought, some of that even spills outside the doors of the church to people in need around us and we just see, this is how I operate. I'm humble. I'm a servant. I'm reflecting Christ. Jesus told me the greatest person is the servant. I want to be the greatest, so I'm getting on my servant's towel. I want to serve in the kingdom of God. That's hard. That goes against our, our natural instincts. Uh, that is it's very countercultural. It's very counter Jeremy. It's very counter you. And so Jesus encourages us, and we'll just wrap up with this with a couple encouraging words to mo- motivate us along. Verse 16. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So look, Jesus did it. He's the teacher. He's the Lord. We, I mean, how could we say we couldn't do that? What is there that I could do for you that would be beneath me? How, how could I find a category for that? Jesus is above me, and he went lower than I could ever go. So how could I possibly look at serving you in some way and saying, well, that's really not, you know, that's beneath my station and whatever I have in my head. No, oh, Christ did it. And so anytime I'm called to serve, I can look to Jesus and realize he's done more. And so I'm not greater than him. I need to serve too. And then here's the second motivation, verse 17. Now that you do these, know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Blessed if I become less? Huh? Blessed if I focus on you and not me? That doesn't make sense. I had uh, coffee um, uh, over... Month, maybe a month and a half ago with someone, a member of our church, and uh, 
we were talking and hanging out, and this member um, several years ago had gone through a, just a really tough time, a lot of frustration, a lot of disappointment in his life, and um, as a result of that, a lot of bitterness, a lot of j- just not you know in a happy place as a Christian, and some of it was associated with with the church, and so there's a lot of kind of bitterness and anger there too. It, it was just a tough time for this person, and, and this person was describing it to me. And, but it was clear as I was talking to the person that that's not how the person felt now. The person was very happy and positive and in a good place. So, so I, I kind of, you know, after a while, I just asked the question. I said, well, how did you get from there to where you are now? Like, what, what did you do to make that transition? And he thought about it for a moment, and then he said, well, I, I just got involved in ministry. And, and that's what this person did. That This person saw some needs in the community, some really people in acute need, and, and he just started serving in that way and giving himself to those people. And this is what he said, and this is why I share the story. This line really just struck me, and, and I wanted to share with you. He said, what I did was I got my eyes off myself, and I put my eyes on the Lord and on other people. And it was amazing how the Lord brought me through when I did that. I think what happened was he experienced very personally John chapter 13, verse 17. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would wash us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us fresh grace. Lord Jesus, we need grace to really believe that you love us. Lord, we need grace to really understand our forgiveness and our cleanness in you. These are, these are spiritual truths that we need you to drive home to us, Lord. And Lord, we need grace to be able to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to hum, humble ourselves and serve others. We just don't do this naturally. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd pour out grace on this church. I, I give you thanks, Jesus, for the grace we already see in this church, for the people who already are humbling themselves and serving one another. But, Lord, I just pray for grace for more. I pray that this would be a fundamental mark in the church. I pray this for my own soul, Lord, that you would continue to put to death pride and self-servingness in my own heart. I pray that for every person here. Just make us a church that looks like Jesus. And Lord, may that affect our gospel witness as we go out to the South Shore and beyond. We pray this all in the name of Jesus who saved and served us. Amen.